Hello, viewers. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Science. So this episode is sponsored by and supported uh, from the members of Science for Society, Indian Humanists, South Asian Humanist Association, and Babu Bhogunini Humanists and Rationalists Arena. So today we have a very special guest who wants to share his experience and opinions in astronomy, space science with us. Uh, before uh, introducing him, let me welcome Mr. Sarath Teja Suminagaru, a science popularizer and member of Science for Society and DG Group. Welcome, Sarath Garu. Thank you, Prasad. And also uh, 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 a regular uh, speaker and uh, the young science enthusiast, uh, Teja Bagari, is also joining us from India. Welcome, Teja. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, now, our special guest uh, for today's episode is uh, uh, Stephen, uh, Dr. Stephen Clifford. So uh, he's joining us from Houston, Texas. Welcome, Stephen. Dr. Stephen. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, he's from uh, he's a senior scientist uh, uh, from Planetary Science Institute, and uh, his areas are uh, uh, areas of expertise are uh, uh, you know. Um, uh, geomorphology and uh, uh, thermal modeling and earth and mars and uh, you know icy satellites and i think uh, trying to find some sort of water uh, uh, you know that can help sustain the life if possible if we happen to ever colonize mars or start uh, considering that idea seriously uh, and uh, a, a lot of papers i think uh, uh, you know i I couldn't count the number of citations he has in Google Scholar, sir. Uh, it's a really uh, honor uh, for us to have you here. Like, uh, you know, uh, your research for over 40 years uh, uh, has really, uh, is really amazing. So uh, welcome to our show. So, uh, so uh, Science for Society and DG Group and uh, uh, Indian Humanists. So we normally do radio shows specifically are more so in our native language Telugu, uh, and uh, we regularly conduct science hours and humanist hours in one of the leading uh, Telugu and most popularized Telugu online or web radios, uh, or spanning like you know our, our live audience will go into hundreds of thousands, uh, and uh, also after that we upload our videos into Indian humanist channels. So that's how we uh, connect with the uh, our audience and also you know, invite uh, uh, quite regularly, you know, special guests and scientists and doctors uh, uh, and, you know, the experts in their own uh, uh, field of sciences. So it's very, very, uh, uh, you know, we are very honored to welcome uh, into our uh, uh, our show now uh, for this episode. So, Sarath uh, Garu, before giving, uh, uh, before letting you ask questions, so my first personal and basic general question that most people have. So I'll ask you, sir, uh, when are we going to Mars? That's a good question. <laughs> uh, if yeah, it not going, is... Yeah, sorry, to, uh, when are we, I'm not saying colonizing or, um, you know, terraformation of Mars, but at least, right. uh, you know, quite sustainably, like, you know, uh, a significant amount of time, uh, humanity will be able to just maybe for a decade or so and, uh, you know, bring people back. Yes, I, I think the earliest, uh, the, the, the best estimate right now is probably uh, the end of the 2030s. 
Um, I know that Elon Musk has talked about uh, sending humans to Mars uh, within this decade. And while I think that's an enviable goal, um, I don't think that it's a realistic one. I think that there's still a lot we need to understand about Mars in terms of the environmental conditions, uh, things like the toxicity of the dust, uh, dust mitigation in terms of uh, you know, how we keep it from contaminating living quarters, and just having basic confidence in the systems that will be required to send humans to Mars and to bring them back safely. Uh, you know, the, the challenges uh, represented by sending humans on a, uh, a six to eight month voyage to Mars, uh, landing them on Mars, uh, having them stay there and do some science for, for a while, and then come back to the Earth on another six to eight month uh, journey is, is a significant problem. And uh, I don't think it's one that uh, realistically we'll be able to address uh, uh, before the 2030s. Yep. And uh, considering that, uh, you know, we are such an advanced uh, civilization or life forms uh, that we know currently, and uh, we have only one planet uh, for now, and only one place. Uh, it's a very small, uh, you know, speck of dust kind of thing uh, in, in the known universe. Uh, so uh, a lot of people are, uh, you know, even Elon Musk says that, you know, it, it's, you know, we need to have some sort of uh, 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 insurance kind of thing where, uh, you know, uh, we should not put, you know, everything in on one small planet, which, which is very uh, you know, prone for, uh, you know, disaster or, you know, another big asteroid strike and burn everything. So, uh, uh, so for that, like, you know, to, to I mean, we're not talking about the extraterrestrial or, uh, sorry, uh, the interstellar travel again, like within the solar system itself, I think looking like, uh, Mars would be the first uh, candidate uh, for, uh, for 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 humans to seriously consider moving out and having their presence there. Uh, so in that case, uh, uh, I think the first I mean out of all the essential uh, uh, requirements that humans need uh, uh, to to make their presence there, uh, water uh, is uh, uh, the availability of uh, you know sustainable. Uh, presence of water uh, could be, I think, in my own personal opinion, the first and foremost requirement, uh, you know, for, for the sustain, uh, you know, uh, life to sustain there and, uh, you know, continue. Um, so where are we in, uh, in terms of uh, uh, finding, uh, you know, sources uh, of water in whatever form that we can tap, uh, you know, to, to make our, uh, you know, travel, uh, uh, life safe on, on Mars? Well, the, the, the most obvious reservoir of water on Mars are the, the Martian polar caps. And we think there's enough water contained in those polar caps that if you were to melt it and distribute it across the planet, it would form a layer probably 25 meters deep, uh, which is a lot of water. The problem is that that water is located at very high latitudes. It's located at the poles, and that makes the temperatures very cold. Um, the earliest human missions that we send to Mars 
are unlikely to go that high in latitude. They're going to be restricted because of, of the environmental conditions, the temperature conditions, uh, and conditions, the constraints of, of sunlight uh, to uh, lower latitudes near the equator. Uh, maybe the highest latitudes we'll consider are temperate latitudes, maybe up to 40 degrees. Um, and there are no obvious reservoirs of water within that latitude range. However, we've got some indirect evidence uh, for the presence of water at those latitudes. Uh, there is a combination of uh, infrared thermal mapping data, radar data, uh, uh, geomorphology data uh, in terms of, of visual images, uh, some gamma ray spectrom uh, spectrometry, yeah, spectroscopy data uh, that when combined uh, give us some insight as to uh, the presence of ground ice on Mars within this latitude band of, of plus or minus 40 degrees. And uh, it's it's possible that ground ice is present in a sufficient abundance uh, that it could be harvested as a source of water. Uh, the amount of water that's actually contained in the Martian atmosphere, though, is, is very, very small. Uh, you know, I had mentioned that uh, the inventory of water in the polar regions, when you consider both poles, is equivalent to a uniform layer about 25 meters deep averaged over the planet's surface. In terms of the amount of atmospheric water, uh, we're talking about a layer maybe 10 microns deep averaged over the surface of the planet. Uh, so maybe on the order of one to two cubic kilometers uh, equivalent of, of, of water uh, in the entire Martian atmosphere. Now we think that in the subsurface, in the form of ground ice, and perhaps at much greater depths uh, in, in the form of subpermafrost groundwater, uh, there could be the equivalent of hundreds of meters of water averaged over the Martian surface. Uh, but the groundwater anyway uh, would be very, very hard to access. We think that the nearest, uh, the shallowest expression of groundwater on Mars is probably at depths of kilometers uh, below the surface. Uh, but between the surface and that depth, we think that there could be substantial amounts of ground ice. And uh, that looks to be the most viable uh, reservoir of water that we could tap for uh, sustaining you know, future human explorers. Thank you very much, Stephen. Um, uh, so yeah, water is definitely one, uh, but uh, not the only one that is uh, sufficient for the for, for any life form to thrive. Um, uh, so because you know uh, there are uh, you know uh, so earth is you know perfect for us, but uh, for us to thrive there and live there, like because it doesn't have uh, 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 you know tectonic activity or volcanic activity, and even even the required uh, gas. Uh, uh, you know, mixture in the air uh, to support uh, to support uh, life. So, uh, uh, but let's uh, uh, talk about uh, water only. Like, uh, uh, so, are there any possibilities of uh, uh, finding life in the solar system outside Earth? 
Well, you know, I think I think there is a potential for finding life on on Mars. Uh, I think the greatest likelihood of finding life would have been very very early in the planet's history when we've got significant evidence that Mars had temperatures uh, that were above freezing, uh, that liquid water did survive on the planet's surface in the form of lakes, seas, and maybe even a northern ocean that covered as much as a third of the planet's surface. Um, and if life evolved on Mars as quickly as life evolved on the Earth in terms of simple microbial life, uh, then it's possible that as the climate changed on Mars, as the atmosphere became thinner, as temperatures became colder, as, as the water uh, was lost either to space or uh, by cold trapping into the subsurface, um, that it's possible that, that those simple microorganisms were able to adapt to a subterranean existence. And that just like on the earth, uh, there may be microbes that are present at depths of kilometers below the surface uh, that survive to the present day is, as long as water is present. Uh, on earth, there are a number of, of microorganisms that are quite content on surviving on only the presence of water and rock. And the minerals that are present in that rock uh, in combination with the presence of liquid water provides the kind of environment that these, these microbes can survive in. Um, so I think that, that Mars very likely uh, evolved life back early in, its, in the planet's history. Uh, the question of whether that life survives to the present day though, I think is contingent on whether or not groundwater is present at depth or whether all of the, uh, the liquid water that was once present on the planet uh, has now been lost. In terms of elsewhere in the solar system, I think there are actually a number of other places that uh, are, are potential habitats for, for life. Uh, certainly the Galilean satellites, uh, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, uh, all three of those are thought to have mantle oceans uh, beneath uh, a, a frozen outer crust that might be on the order of 10 or more kilometers thick. Uh, but we think that beneath that frozen outer crust, uh, there is a liquid water ocean that extends down, you know, 100 kilometers or more on, on all three satellites. And there are, there's evidence of, of similar conditions uh, elsewhere in the solar system in terms of uh, Saturn, uh, Uranus, and Neptune. Even Pluto is thought at, at great depth uh, to still uh, possess a liquid water uh, ocean uh, down at depths of you know, maybe 100 kilometers or, or more below the surface. So the potential certainly exists in all of these environments for life to have evolved. Uh, and we have no idea what the limits of the evolution of that life might be. It might be very simple organisms 
microbial organisms, but it's also possible that more advanced life forms developed in, in the subsurface. And uh, you know, that remains an area for, for future investigations. Uh, you know, I think that uh, missions, particularly missions to Europa, uh, have a great deal of, of uh, promise uh, for discovering life in the solar system. Uh, one of the techniques that's been discussed is sending uh, a submersible that would melt through the frozen outer crust of Europa and uh, then explore the subsurface like a submarine. And um, I think that that could result in some very, very surprising discoveries. Yeah, we will all be waiting for uh, any sort of news, uh, uh, you know, that's related to life outside the Earth, at least at the moment, you know, if not, uh, if not from projects like City, where we are looking for much advanced, uh, you know, uh, intelligence presence. Uh, and uh, at the same time, like our, uh, I think current uh, uh, missions to Mars, like the Perseverance uh, or the Ingenuity helicopter, like uh, they are all trying to find signs of at least past life, if not present life, uh, and, and some form of uh, oceanic activity. Uh, so uh, it will be, uh, it, you know, that evidence will, uh, will uh, you know, help us change uh, uh, or have, uh, you know, opinions about, uh, you know, where to find life or, uh, you know, how life can, if it can, uh, prevail and sustain and, uh, and grow you know, on, uh, in different environments. So uh, that's very, uh, very good insights uh, uh, from you, sir. So Sharath Garu, so uh, you can you can um, take over from here, uh, like yeah, ask questions if you have. Um, so, uh, hi, Steve. So um, huh? um, as, you, as you explained, uh, the possibility on, of life um, having existed on Mars or even continuing to exist now, any form of life, uh, whether it's microbial or any uh, anything that is even more advanced than a uh, than a bacterium, on other planets, all this seems to be uh, hinging on um, the possibility of uh, water existing in liquid form and uh, you know being right. existing in in a particular temperature. It's warm, like you know, like like that in like that on Earth. Uh, so, would you think uh, water? Uh, itself is the smoking gun uh, for uh, to 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 think that uh, life is quite possible uh, to have existed in the past or here, uh, because when we understand uh, life is uh, water is crucial to biochemistry, the biochemistry of of our uh, type of life. Mm, but would you think other things would uh, would I mean of course other things are necessary, uh, but other things other conditions are also fulfilling apart from uh, the warmth of water and water existing there. What do you think? Is that the smoking gun or are there other things more important than that? Well, I, I think in terms of life as we know it, I, th I think liquid water is, is a necessary uh, component of the, of the environment. However, there is always the possibility of life as we do not know it, uh, where there are other liquids that act as the organic or, or the equivalent of an organic solvent. Um, like methane uh, on Titan, would you say? A, methane, uh, ammonia. I mean, uh, th there are a number of uh, possible uh, liquids that, that uh, could 
provide the necessary environment for a different kind of biochemistry to evolve. And I think one of the, the uh, great uh, goals of, of our investigations of Titan uh, is going to be whether or not uh, there is an alternate biochemistry that may have evolved on, on Titan. Certainly Titan has many characteristics that are similar to the Earth. The primary difference being that there is a huge difference in, in, in temperature and where liquid water is, is, is the substance that has eroded our landscape uh, and silicates have been the, the uh, primary component of, of the Earth's crust. Uh, on, on Titan, you've got methane and you've got uh, frozen water ice. And uh, uh, it'll be interesting uh, to see how the geomorphic similarities that we see that seem to suggest that, that Titan has experienced uh, erosion of its surface, uh, the equivalent of rainfall, but methane rainfall, uh, uh, very, very similar geomorphologies to we, what we see on the Earth and Mars, for that matter, um, uh, to, to see whether or not life uh, was able to evolve in that, that kind of environment. Uh, I don't know when the opportunity to send something like a, a, a submarine to explore the, the European oceans is, is going to occur. Uh, but I know that there is a lot of, of work that's being done right now to uh, create that possibility. Uh, and all this research, uh, right now we classify it as uh, planetary science, uh, if, if I'm, my understanding is right. And uh, this is something that's uh, more, uh, that, that's a field that, that has originated, that, has, that, is, that has kind of right, pretty much separated from astronomy, uh, something like a, a few decades ago. So when would you say planetary science as a, as a separate area has started? I mean, you, you, you uh, did your PhD uh, in astronomy uh, and astronomy yes. astrophysics. That was like one, uh, one set of uh, like fields that people uh, would uh, gain expertise in. And later on, they would uh, move on to planetary science. So when would you say, if you look at the history of planetary science, when would you say it's separated from uh, these other areas? I, personally, I think that planetary science became a distinct discipline, uh, probably with the early investigations of the moon, when we, we sent spacecraft to the moon. I think prior to that time, prior to the, the early 1960s, Although there was planetary work that was being done, I mean, you know, Galileo observed the moons of Jupiter and 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 you know looked at the planets through his telescope, as did many many others, Tycho Brahe, and you know, a number of of the early astronomers. Um, I think it was viewed at that time uh, as being equivalent to all other aspects of, of, of astronomy, eclipses and you know, lunar and solar eclipses, uh, uh, what was known about other stars at the time. I mean, even as recently as, as 100 years ago, uh, there really wasn't an appreciation for how vast uh, the universe is and the fact that uh, many of the things that have been categorized as nebula uh, were actually other galaxies. galaxies. Yes. So. Um, uh, you know, so 
we had sketches of, of canals on Mars. We had sketches of the craters on the moon um, uh, and, and eventually photographs. Uh, but, but really, I think planetary science came into its own uh, with the sending of spacecraft to uh, uh, the moon, Mars, Venus, and uh, as, as time has gone on to the other planets in the solar system. And uh, when, so I think it's, a, it's I think it's, a, uh, I think it's interesting that you said that, uh, that you mentioned that planetary science uh, has actually originated into a field of its own, largely because of the space missions, when we were exploring uh, what's beyond the earth, and we were actually exploring them closely uh, from, from those objects, rather than looking from here, like, Galile like Galileo did, or, or Vestra Slipher did, for example, I mean, when, uh, before, just before the nebula were classified into galaxies, I think his work was crucial. So, um, so what would you say to this argument uh, that, um, that how useful is exploring outside, uh, you know, spending money on, you know, uh, on space missions and uh, studying planets outside Earth? And then because this activity typically comes along with uh, the suggestion or the futuristic idea that humans may at some point of time go somewhere to settle down. So would you say that and there is also the uh, argument that's being made that uh, there is also this uh, thing that is pointed out frequently that we have to preserve Earth a lot and we have to you know study the Earth a lot. So would you think these two are orthogonal in the sense that would you think um, sending things to, into space and studying the planets, of course, it created uh, very interesting branches of study like planetary science in which you are uh, an expert in. But would you think that is also helpful to alleviate the pressing problems on Earth? Are these two not orthogonal really and are do these are these two aligned what would you say i i think they're very much aligned uh, the only way that we have of understanding the complexity of the earth's climate of the uniqueness of the conditions which exist on the earth uh, is is really by looking at other planets uh, we understand the greenhouse effect uh, far better because of our explorations of Venus, where the greenhouse effect is, we, we've got a runaway greenhouse that has resulted in, you know, the, the closest approximation to hell that we can, we can find. Um, we see evidence that early Mars, even with a solar output that was perhaps uh, a quarter to a third less than what uh, the sun puts out today, uh, still had temperatures that allowed liquid water to survive on its surface. Uh, that too tells us something about the power of the greenhouse effect. Um, so there is a lot that we've learned just in terms of the radiative properties, the, the thermal properties, uh, the, the climatic effects of changes in atmospheric composition uh, by studying the atmospheres of the other planets. Um, there is also uh, an incredible record of climate change that's preserved in the Martian polar layer deposits. We see layering that we can associate with the kinds of astronomically induced variations in surface temperature on Mars, 
Mars currently has an axial inclination that's about the same as the Earth, uh, but we've got a great deal of evidence uh, that suggests that the axial inclination of Mars varies from as little as zero degrees, so the spin axis is, is uh, perpendicular to the orbital plane, to as much as 60 degrees. And we see a record of those kind of variations in the layering that's observed in both the north and south polar uh, layered terrains. So we're very anxious to go to those terrains and, and analyze that record, uh, which can also tell us something about uh, how those astronomical uh, variations have affected not only the climate of Mars, but might potentially affect uh, the climate of the Earth. And that might help us understand um, the record of climate change preserved in our own polar regions and in places like Greenland uh, and in the sediments that we find, uh, the sedimentary structures that we find in the Earth's oceans. Uh, so there is, is a great deal, I think, that can be learned about um, the stability and uh, uh, the evolution of the Earth's own climate over geologic time and what implications that has for the impact of, of human-caused uh, climate change in the future. Uh, as for the importance of planetary science, planetary exploration, whether robotic or human, uh, when viewed against some of the needs that the Earth obviously has in terms of our, you know, uh, ensuring that uh, we minimize the impact of human climate change, that we provide uh, the kind of resources that are needed to uh, feed the world's hungry, uh, those, those kind of issues. So I think that the amount of money that we spend on planetary science, solar system exploration is, is a very, very small part of what is spent globally on things like military or, or cosmetics or, or you know, uh, high-end automobiles. And I think when you put it in that kind of context, I think that the benefits that we get from uh, the exploration of space uh, are a much better uh, return on our investment uh, than many of the other things that we spend money on. Yeah, it, I think it's, it's, that's, that's, it's certainly true that a lot of things uh, that we did not even think of a lot of technologies that were created simply because uh, we were trying to solve problems, you know, either sending things to space or or to study things, uh, you know, these heavenly bodies, the Mars or anything. I think um, I think everyone uh, right now knows about uh, infrared thermometers, IR thermometers, and they were largely designed to uh, measure temperatures uh, in space. I believe. I mean, it, it's that's a technology that was created to solve a problem. Uh, in outer space. And I think it's also interesting that you point out that um, uh, that climate change, what we understand about climate change uh, is largely uh, because of uh, the data and it's, it's uh, I mean, that, that the knowledge, what we have on climate change on earth uh, and how space missions have contributed to it directly. And this leads me to, uh, you know, 
point out uh, this contrast that everyone is excited about space missions. When we do something uh, adventurous or when we do something that is interesting or outright, outright brilliant, like sending people to moon, for example, that was a great statement uh, of what humanity can achieve, uh, can, can, you know, can even think and do. And that has spurred a lot of uh, cultural movements, like even environmentalism, for example, and, and the need mm -hmm. to preserve Earth. And it also inspired a generation of scientists, a generation of kids at that point of time, uh, school-going children to, to do science, to go into scientific research and, and things like that. So at the same time, we, we applaud about what we do on space, but these implications of what we learn about things on Earth based on what we study in space, like climate change, is something that has that is uh, that has become contentious uh, in in today's time, and especially uh, say uh, in many countries, including uh, United States, there is this uh, spectrum of uh, belief that is that is very much supported in the political ecosystem from outright denying the climate change and to say, saying something like human activity anthropogenic. It's it's not anthropogenic climate change. I mean, it's not because of human activity. It's something else, um, and. What would you say when you when you look at these two, the same politicians who, who vote for budget, you know, for for the for sending for planetary missions to do things, adventurous things in space? What people have done across Atlantic, like I think 300 years, 400 years ago, what we are trying to do in space, at the same time denying uh, the implications here. What would you? What is your view on this kind of contrast? It's a very very troubling. Um aspect of today's politics, particularly in the US. Uh, there are many people who should know better uh, who deny the science. The connection between the increase in global temperatures over the past few hundred to, to 2000 years tracks perfectly with the increase and CO2 uh, that has uh, resulted from uh, deforestation, from the burning of fossil fuels, uh, and tracks the amount of warming that has occurred from the increase in CO2 that we've measured by looking at the gases trapped in ice cores and, and other things. Um, the, the, the temperature increase tracks right on the nose. Uh, so the, the, the scientific evidence for uh, the human uh, aspects of global warming, the human relationship, the connection there uh, is, is very, very clear. And I think one of the problems is the lack of understanding of science, of the scientific method uh, in the, the general population. Certainly that's true in the US. Uh, I don't think we have been as good as we need to be uh, as scientists, as educators in communicating uh, the scientific process, the scientific method and the importance of, of applying that method to understanding things uh, like climate change. Uh, and you have political opportunism. Uh, you have politicians who see an opportunity to appeal to those who least understand science and have sort of an emotional 
uh, objection to what they hear in terms of the connection between uh, human development, technological development, industrial development, uh, and global warming, uh, and 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 have that feeling, that expression, those political beliefs, those ideological beliefs, uh, because they don't really understand science. But there are politicians who know better, who do understand the science, but see that by tapping uh, that, that group that does not understand science, uh, it promotes their own political uh, uh, progress, their, their ability to seek higher office. And I think that that's in the US, a, a, a real, real problem. And uh, it's a problem that I believe uh, is found just about everywhere else in the world as well. And do you think there is also um, this, do, do you really think that there is, there is, there's an argument that is frequently made that people, um, there, there is an increase in distrust of uh, scientific experts among general public. If we look at the way how things have unfolded during COVID pandemic, for example, COVID was probably the biggest uh, uh, challenge that we that everyone had, had faced on the planet. I think in the, in the recent times, I think in the last 50, 60 years, I think apart from the economic collapses, uh, COVID was the major uh, uh, thing that that risk that everyone has faced on the planet. And yet, uh, even though I mean, if we look at the overall thing. The reason we didn't, so many people did not die due to COVID, if we compare with any previous global pandemics like um, like the one with swine flu before, or even even the Spanish flu before, uh, the re the main reason why fewer people, a, a, a lot of fewer people have died uh, or even contracted the disease, and the reason uh, the uh, uh, the pandemic was finished in like at least two years, two to three years, it has milder, uh, it has it is now mild at least to this level. Is largely because of scientists, and it's largely because of the technology, you know, the computing technology, all the collaboration that people were able to do. Even then, uh, we still see people uh, at large with vaccine hesitancy, you know, uh, hesitancy to take vaccines, and also even to follow basic guidelines like you know, wearing masks or uh, washing hands, and falling prey to non-scientific things and pseudo-scientific things. And even in the United States. Uh, 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 Dr. Fauci has faced a lot of flack across, I think, sure. uh, the board. What do you think of this? I mean, in 21st century, when, when people are using technology and um, even though scientific experts, they come, there's consensus and they say, you know, this is what we have to do. Even then, uh, people don't agree to it. Not may not be simply because of politics, but do you think there is also a larger distrust of scientific community, uh, scientific experts among general public? Yeah, I think that there is a distrust of, of experts in general, whether in science or, or in other areas. And I think, again, it's in large part because of, of the failures of our educational system. Um, in, in the US, we have uh, a history of categorizing children at a very young age uh, in terms of those that show academic uh, promise and, and those that perhaps are um, headed to uh, more, to, to a, a lower level of, of, of standard, of, of, of uh, 
uh, job opportunities of, of, of education. And uh, I think that's wrong. I, I, I think that uh, we should not be so focused on uh, trying to emphasize, uh, to, to focus on, on the best and brightest that we see at a very young age, because there are many students who are late bloomers. I was a late bloomer um, back uh, when I was in sixth grade. Uh, they had broken down the students uh, in sixth grade into six different academic levels. And the, the top few were considered college material, where they were, they were considered to be the ones that were going to uh, uh, go into professional careers. The ones near the bottom uh, didn't get the, the best teachers and were sort of given up on. And um, I, I, I think that that's a terrible shame. For me personally, uh, the thing that made the difference that got me excited about education uh, was science. I had a very, very um, energetic, enthusiastic, uh, very knowledgeable science teacher when I was in sixth grade. And uh, that, that really turned me on to, to science. That and an interest in science fiction, <laughs> which I also had at a very early age. And that, that stimulated the, the imagination and got me so that uh, I, I went out and, and uh, bought my first telescope and, and looked up the stars at, at night. So, so those things captured my imagination and inspired me to go on in, in, in science. But there were many kids that I knew back at that time who were just as bright as I was, but because they didn't get that spark, they didn't get that inspiration from a teacher, from, from what they read or, or what have you, um, they did not go on to, to succeed in the, in the, in the same way uh, that the kids that were thought to be smarter uh, uh, eventually did in terms of the opportunities that they had. And I've always thought that that was a shame, that uh, we really need to spend more time trying to find that thing that ignites the interest and enthusiasm of students at a, at a, at a young age uh, so that they are able to fulfill uh, their, their promise, their uh, that they're able to take advantage of opportunities that come their way. That's, um, that, 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 I think that's a, that's a very, um, I think, insightful thing to say, uh, Steve. And, and on, a, on a lighter side, so you said you uh, enjoyed science fiction. Um, so, oh, you, so yes. you're a fan of the Golden Age science fiction, uh, Asimov, Heinlein, Z, or uh, do you also like contemporary science fiction, which is more dystopic? Yes. Yes, actually, my my first uh, encounter with science fiction came out that uh, came about as a result of a book that my cousin gave me, and it was the the name of the book was Tom Swift and the Visitor from the Planet X, and it was a book series that it was aimed at 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 uh, very young uh, uh, 
young people. And um, it was kind of corny, but it, it provided the incentive to go and find other science fiction books that I, I read. And, and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, and, and you know the, the, there were a host of them uh, that wrote books that just really, I mean, my earliest interests in Mars certainly came about from the writings of, of Arthur C. Clarke and, and Robert Heinlein. Um, uh, they created this, this, this world in my mind of uh, domed cities and canals. And, and uh, it, was, it was very, very exciting in terms of what I was looking forward to in our exploration of Mars, even when I was still you know, a, a, a very young child. Uh, I can remember very, very clearly uh, when Mariner 4 flew by Mars in 1964-65 um, and took the first pictures, close-up pictures of the surface. And when I saw those pictures and the, the most identifiable feature in those pictures were craters, I got very depressed <laughs> because the only other object that I knew of at the time that had craters was the moon and the moon was lifeless. And suddenly this idea of canals and dome cities just evaporated. And uh, I, I think the next few years were, were very disheartening. Uh, uh, you know, Mariner so, 4. So you realized there was no Santa Claus, Tooth Fairy and Martians. So all the three <laughs> of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm afraid Mariner 6 and 7 they flew by essentially the same portion of the Martian surface that Mariner 4 had flown by, uh, which was the Southern Hemisphere, which is the oldest uh, uh, terrain on Mars and which is the most heavily cratered terrain on Mars. So up, in, up through 1969, you know, our understanding of the potential for life on Mars, our understanding of uh, how Mars had evolved as a planet uh, turned out to be very distorted. And it wasn't until Mariner 9 went into orbit in 1971 uh, that we began to see how different the rest of the planet was. Uh, the fact that there were these huge volcanoes uh, located on the, uh, the Tharsis bulge, this bulge on the, the equatorial region of Mars, uh, uh, where you have the tallest volcano, the largest volcano in the solar system, Olympus Mons, uh, where you had not only carbon dioxide in the Martian polar regions, but you also had water ice, uh, that we saw the evidence of fluvial erosion on the surface, ranging from everything from very fine uh, dendritic-like valley networks, which suggested that the Martian surface uh, had been exposed to rainfall very early in its history, to huge dry riverbeds that had uh, inferred discharges that were a thousand times or more uh, greater than the largest river systems on, on the earth, like the Amazon. Um, we saw evidence of cold climate features like pingos and uh, patterned ground, uh, 
that we find in the Arctic environments on the Earth, and we also found these on Mars. Uh, so Mars turned out to be a much, much more complicated planet than our early flyby missions, Mariner 4, Mariner uh, 6 and 7, uh, had suggested. So uh, we, we owe a lot to those early uh, robotic missions to Mars, particularly the ones that went into orbit, like Mariner 9 and, and, and the Viking missions. So when you look at all the sci-fi uh, that's centered on Mars, uh, uh, so, I mean, we started from the Martians and there was a film Martian, you know, uh, that recently came out. What do you think, I mean, what, what do you think of the film? I mean, that film, a lot of people have a lot of opinions on that. I think we respect all those <laughs> opinions. What do you think of that? Um, I mean, do, do you think, um, I mean, I think one, uh, I think one strange thing that I noticed was the, the reliance on potatoes in that film. Yes. <laughs> would you think if really people went to Mars, they would, they would, you know, they would hinge their lives on potatoes or would we, I mean, we did at some point of time, you know, like uh, 300 years ago when a potatoes increased, uh, you know, the numbers of pe number of people who, who would survive. But, but would you think really potatoes have a future in humanity, in Mars? Well, I, yeah, I, 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 I think potatoes will be part of the diet uh, uh, when, when uh, we get to Mars. Um, I hope they never become the dominant uh, source of food for for future uh, uh, future human inhabitants of, of Mars. But I, I I think in in the particular aspect in which uh, you know potatoes uh, were featured in in the Martians in the Martian was simply because uh, you know it was something easy to grow that he still had in, in the, uh, the habitat. And, uh, and is it uh, safe the, to grow it with human waste? I, feel, I think there are, there's like, there are some bacteria that would come into the plants and that would, that would be deadly. Right? Uh, it, it could be, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on that aspect. Uh, you know, I, I think the Martian was uh, a great story. It was entertaining. Uh, but there, there were a number of, of scientific aspects to it, uh, not the least of which was uh, his, his getting sort of blown away and, and hit by uh, a piece of antenna uh, in a Martian dust storm. And with an atmospheric pressure that's less than 1% of the atmosphere pressure of the Earth at sea level, there's no way that could have happened. He, he could have <laughs> blown through the storm and everything would have cleared up. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but but it was an entertaining film, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I I get uh, entertained and excited and inspired as as a child uh, by Star Trek, and there are many aspects of Star Trek that uh, are not supported by our understanding of science. Nonetheless, uh, it is a show which inspired so many young adults at the time, so many adults at the time, uh, that I, th I think science fiction plays a very, very important role in uh, creating the inspiration that results in people going into to science, into engineering, uh, into medicine. And um, uh, I, th I think it's important to have that as part of our our culture, uh, uh, to have those things that 
you know, maybe they're not 100% uh, based on science and facts and whatnot, but that is what I think is, is sometimes needed to stimulate the imagination and get us thinking beyond what we're just familiar with on a, on a day-to-day basis. That, yep. I think uh, that, that's, that's a wonderful thing to say, uh, Steve. So uh, Teja, do, uh, do you have any questions for uh, Dr. Clifford you would like to ask? Yeah, there are a few I got as well, so which I would like to add upon. Uh, so what other types of robotic missions, aside from uh, exploratory rovers, uh, samples written, do you think should be sent to Mars? And why, should, why, sh why do you think uh, the other types of missions are important rather than these? Well, the, in, in many respects, I think that our exploration of Mars has not proceeded in the most logical way. Uh, I think if, for example, we were to send uh, a probe to a nearby star system to look at the planets that were present uh, around that nearby star, there's a certain order of investigation that you would naturally expect to occur. And I think the initial thing would be to put in an orbit spacecraft that could image the, the, the surface of the planet uh, using infrared, using visual, uh, to do sounding investigations with, with orbital radar. Uh, I think the next logical step would be to send uh, network missions to send a, a number of landers that would yeah. operate on the planet's surface at the same time to do studies of the planet's meteorology, uh, to do geophysical investigations of the subsurface, uh, to do imaging of the local landscape. And it would be a way of inexpensively uh, investigating a number of different local sites across the planet. Then I think that the next kind of investigation that, that uh, you'd send, the ne next type would be the rovers, to, uh, whether or not they're wheeled rovers or uh, they're things like Perseverance, uh, things like uh, you know helicopters or, or aircraft or balloons. Uh, that could do aerial studies at, at a much uh, lower altitude uh, uh, so that they could do uh, very detailed investigations at the surface, perhaps land at a, at a particularly interesting location that might be inaccessible from uh, a, a rover uh, uh, to do very basic kinds of analytical in, investigations at the surface. Um, and that's the kind of approach that I think if uh, we had had in our exploration of Mars would have given us much better understanding of the planet at this point uh, in time than, than what we have now. Unfortunately, I think that uh, much of the selection of, of what the next mission is going to be on Mars has been sort of tweaked uh, by um, what is going to employ the most people. And that tends to be very, very expensive, very large rovers at, at the present time. And as a result, the kind of network missions, the kind of simple landers that could do things like 
study the atmosphere and its its motions. Uh, 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 you know the the local environmental conditions at perhaps ten or twelve or more different places on the the planet's surface. Uh, th those haven't been done. Um, and also, I think the geophysical investigations are very important. This, this InSight mission that we sent uh, that has a seismometer, they've been able to do incredible things with the information, with the data that they've gotten back from that instrument, but would know a lot more and in much greater detail uh, if we sent uh, a network mission where we had multiple seismometers on the surface of Mars. There are also electromagnetic investigations where you send very low frequency electromagnetic uh, uh, waves into the subsurface that can tell, tell us things about the conductivity of the subsurface uh, uh, as a function of depth and, and, and geography, the geography of Mars. And that can tell you things like whether or not groundwater is present at depth. Uh, whether or not there are brines that uh, occur on a diurnal or seasonal basis in the subsurface. Um, so the, 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 there are a lot of things that I think could be done by far simpler and less expensive missions uh, than the rover missions that we've sent to Mars. I think the rover missions have been extremely successful, uh, but again, we're looking at just a very small area with those rovers. And I think there's still a lot uh, that we could find out about the rest of the planet through sending multiple uh, less sophisticated uh, spacecraft landers uh, across the planet's surface. Yeah, then also uh, another question I would like to ask is, uh, we hear quite a lot about uh, diamonds raining on Neptune. Do you think that is true? Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. Uh, do diamonds rain on Neptune? Oh, oh, I, I, I have no idea. I read that with uh, uh, quite a lot of interest, too. Uh, uh, the, the, the calculations seem to suggest that, yes, diamond rain could occur on, on Neptune. Uh, but that is certainly something that I never would have thought of. So it, it takes people who are sort of looking at the special conditions that exist at uh, 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 Uranus and, and Neptune as to whether or not, uh, you know, processes like that that can, can occur. I think we're also beginning to understand a lot about uh, the potential for the variety of different planetary environments that uh, might exist uh, by studying the exoplanets. Uh, you know, we've seen planets in places that we never expected uh, with Jupiter-sized planets that are at you know, equivalent distances of, of Mercury to the sun. These hot Jupiters were just completely unexpected. Uh, we found uh, other planets that are, are rocky planets, um, but are so close to their, their parent star that they've got uh, an atmosphere that's composed of metals. Um, you know, there, there, there is just such a wide range of possibilities now in terms of the kinds of planets that, that we find elsewhere in our galaxy uh, that uh, I, I think it's 
providing a context for understanding our own solar system uh, that we would not have had if we hadn't conducted uh, investigations like the TESS uh, orbital uh, uh, investigation that uh, looked at the, the, the prevalence of planets around other stars. Yeah, and uh, one more question is, uh, and it's basically like in India, we have the ISRO and scientists at the ISRO basically uh, do prayers and the so-called muhurtams before they actually launch a mission. Uh, that was also done for Chandrayaan 2. Uh, you know, it, it was still a little bit of failure kind of thing. And what do you think about uh, scientists uh, with the huge visibility when they do all this, uh, you know, uh, something like against the science or something like that? What do you think uh, when leaders of scientific institutions with huge visibility in public do this kind of thing? Um. Uh, hard, hard, hard to say. I, I mean, I, I, um, I think that there, there is a, a natural competition uh, for funds um, uh, within many organizations. Uh, um, and and please correct me if I if I've misunderstood what you're asking, but uh, there there is politics everywhere in 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 uh, science as well as in government, and um, we have had in the U.S., for example, uh, those who have argued that. Uh, we should spend our, our scientific research, uh, our, our investment in, in science and space exploration uh, solely on robotic investigations uh, that, that humans really have no, no place in the future exploration of the solar system. And uh, I think that that is uh, a very mistaken attitude. Uh, because I think it is the human element that provides much of the motivation uh, for wanting to explore. So Steve, um, uh, just, just to set the context, just to put, give more context to the question that Teja asked. Sure. So the, these are incidents where, these are recurring incidents where the head of uh, the Indian Space Research Organization, the head and you know department heads, they visit uh, temples to seek blessings before rocket launches, ah. before important missions, and uh, okay. there was and there was this incident before uh, Chandrayaan two, uh, where uh, the the ISRO, you know, the Indian Space Research Organization head, uh, he was he was an aerospace engineer. He's an aerospace engineer. He had a, he has a PhD in that aerospace engineering. Uh, uh, K. Shivan, Dr. K. Shivan, he went and sought blessings of um, of uh, you know of the head of a religious uh, institution. Uh, it's called a UDP Mutt. And then there were also in media and in newspapers, there would also all these kinds of reports that uh, that ISRO scientists themselves seek auspicious times from these holy seers uh, to uh, you know to fix the uh, time for rocket launch of all things, as if oh, uh, as if the I planets see. decide not just human affairs. Uh, I mean, for 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 for, uh, for for goodness sake, even the position, even the future of a rocket that's going to be launched. So 
and and you 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 mentioned something uh, you 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 actually uh, talked uh, a great deal about the need for scientific literacy and scientific education in society and how public it's important for public to understand that so when you see you know uh, public officials uh, of scientific standing having the, with with great uh, you know public influence do these kind of things what kind of thing uh, what do, do you think it's it's good uh, even if they have personal beliefs do you think as as heads of institution they have some standards of behavior uh, you know they have to set towards to especially in a country like india where large section is illiterate and scientifically illiterate yeah, I think that there is a distinct difference between science and religion. And scientists may have religious beliefs, but decisions in terms of uh, launch dates, in terms of what kinds of investigations you send, uh, that, that sort of thing, have to be based on hard science. Uh, uh, religion has a place in the personal lives of, of individuals, uh, but it doesn't have a place in terms of deciding uh, scientific uh, criteria uh, for things like investigations, launches, and, and, and what have you. Um, you know, they there are people in planetary science in the U.S. Um, some of them are, are, are atheists or agnostics. Uh, but I also know that there are scientists, very good scientists, who have uh, much more fundamentalist kind of beliefs, uh, 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 you know, have, have a very deep religious uh, orientation of, of their life, but they know how to distinguish and how to separate uh, their religious beliefs from uh, their scientific work and the, the, the needs uh, that, uh, that that scientific research has uh, in terms of looking at um, the hard evidence for whether it is the evolution of earth or whether it is the evolution of life um, uh, that while they may uh, invest a great deal in uh, the biblical stories about how life evolved that there was an adam and eve and and that sort of thing uh, they're also capable of looking at the geologic record uh, looking at the evidence uh, for the evolution of life uh, that's preserved in, in, in rocks uh, that, that paleontology has told us about the, the, the dinosaurs and the evolution of, of mammals and that sort of thing. And uh, uh, so I, I, I think it is in fact possible to separate out personal religious beliefs with science. And uh, I think it, it's a necessity if uh, science is to advance. And uh, on a, a related note, like I would like to bring up something that you may not uh, uh, like much uh, <laughs> uh, from the place where we are coming from. So the position of Mars at the time of birth of a particular you know, uh, uh, of people, uh, you know, brings bad luck or, you know, they, they'll, they'll, 
they'll get uh, uh, you know uh, hard time finding their mates. So <laughs> mm. uh, superstitions like that. So there are a lot of them associated, especially with Mars. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so general public. So there, there is a lot of uh, um, uh, superstition, and uh, also uh, you know those who promote pseudoscience and uh, you know misinformation and disinformation in social media for their own personal benefits they you know they use these kind of examples where uh, you know uh, famous or uh, you know noted people especially related to science like when they do some things like this in in, in public life so they'll take this as an example and uh, you know uh, you know quote them saying that you know uh, you know, you know, it, it, it's, you know, what we know now is not everything. And, you know, there is something, some magic behind uh, that is still waiting to be explored, some things like that. So, uh, say, yeah, for instance, so I mean, you, you are so passionate about Mars. I mean, most, a lot of your research is on Mars. And in India, the most popular thing people know about Mars, as, as, as if it's a matter of fact, is that it stops your marriage. <laughs> <laughs> and we know we just came to know you know neptune might help you in getting married with diamonds and all but <laughs> mars stopping you from getting married is something that is so prevalent and people i mean they, their lives get upside down because of this uh arranged marriage is still a huge thing in india and most of the marriages are arranged marriages and if if someone has mars in a, in a particular place in their horoscope which is not even a piece of paper worth looking into uh, they, they, I mean, it, it really hampers, uh, I mean, it really makes their life upside down. What, what do you think, I mean, on, on, on intuitive level and, and intellectual level about this kind of thing? I mean, you, you probably are, uh, I think, one of the uh, people who know on this planet who know about Mars the most. <laughs> so, I mean, when people uh, believe in this kind of things, uh, like astrology, horoscopes, and, and when, you know, superstitions about Mars, uh, what do you think? And and these the people, you know, the astrologers is a big business in India, and they they give these kind of examples where you know you look at this Israel's head, you know, the top science guy. This guy went to uh, you know to pray for for the blessings of planets to launch his rocket. Uh, so you know, yeah, this is how it is. What what do you, what, what yeah, what do you there, there there is absolutely no evidence that there is any connection between. Uh, the motions of the planets, whatever planet you choose, and uh, um, the future of 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 individuals here on on the Earth. You know, I think about the the only connection that there has ever been uh, that uh, uh, there might be some relationship between the way an organism functions on the Earth and what's going on in the sky is the similarity uh, in, in menstrual periods with, with uh, uh, the, the, the duration of 28 days uh, and, and the lunar cycle. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of any connection between Mars and, and people's conduct, uh, whether it's marriage or any other aspect of, of their life, uh, there, there's absolutely no evidence that, that there's any connection at all. Uh, in terms of how, uh, you know, someone in a, in a high position in, in, in a space agency uh, uh, may consult with uh, spiritual advisors, 
uh, is to an opportune launch date. Uh, it would be unfortunate if, if that was the true motivation, but it might be understandable in a society where there was faith in astrology uh, that it might be done for political reasons, that it might be done to address uh, the belief in the broader community that there is a relationship, even though that individual may be well enough educated to know that there is no relationship uh, there. Uh, certainly that kind of thing has happened in the US where, where people who were knew enough about the science uh, to, to know uh, what they should be saying, uh, but because the appreciation and the, the general voter population uh, was something different, uh, tried to, to appeal to that audience to make their, their work uh, more acceptable. And for example, uh, I mean, this, this is even beyond horoscopes uh, in, Indian, in Indian society. For example, today's uh, lunar eclipse, uh, right? So, and it's, it's a beautiful sight. And uh, especially, you know, people who like to photograph moon and celestial objects, they are very much uh, delighted uh, to, 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 you know, to try to capture moon in, when there is low light, when there, it's in, in eclipse, you know, you can clearly uh, get the craters right and all that. And, um, and, and, incident, and incidentally, and a very interesting piece of history in, in ancient Indian astronomy is that Aryabhata in, uh, in the fourth century, uh, he, uh, he wrote a book and then, I mean, he wrote a work in his work, he reasoned that the shadow of the of the Earth, which is pretty much what the lunar eclipse is all about, is is round in shape, is circular in shape. So the Earth must have been must be spherical in shape. That's that's the he reasoned that out, uh, and that it, it did it in 1600 years ago about the shape of uh, the Earth. So and even today, people are afraid of eclipses in Indian society by and large, and it's all mixed with the culture, with astrology, with uh, and and the and the popular notion is that uh, the eclipse is not because of shadow or light and shadow, but it's because uh, some you know celestial snakes they they eat you know the 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 you know the gulp uh, they swallow uh, sun or moon and then they release it. So it's called you know eclipse has so that that's that's the terminology that goes in, and and it so happens that on on eclipses especially you know pregnant women they are not they are forced not to eat. I mean uh, it's the popular notion superstition is that food gets spoiled because there is no planet, you know, because there is no moon, so there is no power of the moon coming in and all these sort of things. So you're not supposed to eat anything and especially uh, especially pregnant women are forced not to eat because it, it apparently harms their babies. That's the popular notion. And it's it's very difficult to fight these kind of things. And um, and these kind of things, when they happen on a broad scale uh, at, at levels of authority, they just reinforce this kind of culture. How would you say we tackle it? I mean, if we, it's it's it's. I mean, it's clear to uh, whoever examines the evidence, like a scientist does, or in the method of science, it's very clear that these things don't have a relation to any uh, each other at all, and these are just superstitious nonsense. But but what do you think uh, is the approach to convince the public? I mean, who can't appreciate evidence in this fashion, uh, just to make them realize that there is no bearing of these things in their life? What's your suggestion as a scientist? Well, I, I, I think the, the ultimate solution is to begin scientific education 
at a very, very early age to look at what's to, to teach uh, young people uh, the scientific method to do it with simple things, uh, you know, might be initially in terms of physics and just looking at, at you know, a ball rolling down an inclined plane and, and what kind of observations you need to ma make in order to understand that motion. Uh, uh, it might be looking at um, microorganisms in pond water, or river water, uh, and, and understanding um, what's necessary in terms of uh, um, how life may have evolved from those, those simple organisms or what the characteristics of those simple organisms are versus more complicated organisms. Just begin to introduce them to the aspects of, of, of the scientific methods so that uh, when they become adults, uh, they do so in a more, um, uh, in a way where they understand the difference between superstition and what can be concluded uh, based on observation and facts. And uh, uh, so in, in my own past, I really don't remember much in the way of any kind of introduction to science until I was in my fifth or sixth grade. And I think that's too late. I think that there are ways of introducing science uh, at, at a much earlier age. And that may be limited by the resources in the local community. There are many parts in the United States where education is funded on the basis of the financial resources of that local community. And we have some great disparities in terms of, 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 of wealth, of, of the money that's available for education in the US. Uh, those that are in more affluent areas are able to get a really top-notch education. But unfortunately in the US, we, we still have many areas uh, many rural areas, and even in some urban areas, uh, where there is not the financial resources uh, to provide a, a really good education. And I think that in each country, uh, there is a need to find a way uh, to get beyond the idea of uh, education being simply a local responsibility. I really think it's a national and global responsibility. And we need to, to work as a nation and, and work as globe through uh, organizations like the United Nations to make sure that we have uh, the resources uh, and, and uh, capabilities and opportunities available to people everywhere, wherever uh, uh, they're located, whether in Africa and in India, uh, in, in Asia, uh, or in, in many environments in, in the US. It's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, uh, it's, it's, it can be, it should be a collective work and uh, we, have, we need to have global efforts in doing this because um, the, the level of, uh, you know, uh, per, uh, pervasiveness of this particular problem, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, even though it's, it's high in Indian society, there are people who are actually doing it on global scale. For example, 
there is this uh, there is this uh, there is this person called Jaggi Vasudev. He calls himself Sadguru. That's a title that he conferred upon himself. It means wise guru. But I'll tell you what his wisdom is all about. So uh, especially he, he actually there there is a YouTube video of him. He has huge popularity in India. He speaks in English, and then uh, he he actually goes and speaks in um, you know forums like World Economic Forum and also some of United Nations forums, and he 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 says I mean. In, there are YouTube videos, you know, where he says that, um, you know, um, how women should not, menstruating women, you know, should not do certain things, how their biology is different when they are menstruating, you know, how different energies come into them and all sorts of things. And and more famously, he he, he actually did a farcical uh, performance, uh, you know, on, on a day of an eclipse. So he actually uh, showed it on, on, I think it was on a... I think it was on a full moon day or it was on a new moon day. I think he did this. He took some food. He did, he did some pendulum dozing, you know, this farce he did. And he said, look at how the pendulum is so swinging so fast near food. It's because of the moon's power. That's why you should not eat this food during eclipse. So, and the and these, I mean, I just gave an example of this person. And um, he was featured on Trevor Noah show, uh, you know, uh, I think like a few months back. And he was doing a, a farcical rally for to save soil by driving, uh, you know, by driving vehicles that don't even give you like 10 kilometers per liter mileage. So that's the kind of thing he does. And and people like this, they they get uh, they get platforms in uh, you know World Economic Forums as some sorts of guides, you know, experts. I don't know in in what, but they get invited to these things. And he also he also addressed United Nations uh, uh, some platform uh, I think a few years ago. Do you think um, we should, I mean, the media should look at these kind of things differently? I mean, any, some person who might be coming from uh, a country like India or any other developing country who might be uh, representing the culture of that country, uh, do you think uh, the media, I mean, he was featured on this Trevor Noah show, it's quite a popular show. And Trevor Noah is, I think a lot of times, you know, uh, uh, Trevor Noah calls out, you know, uh, politicians and other people in the, in the United States who think, in superstitious way or pseudoscientific ways and, and anti-scientific ways. And this person is, does all, I mean, he made a living out of, you know, talking things like that. So do you think uh, there is a gap in the way how media, you know, um, scrutinizes the, their guests, you know, when, simply because they, they represent some culture, you know, they, they call themselves representative for culture of a developing country because there's, there is this whole, you know, cult, uh, because they made their living out of this kind of propagating this kind of things. What do you think we do? Do you think media in the West has this problem? Well, I, I, yes, I, I definitely think media has the problem. Um, in the US, we have what I would consider responsible media, uh, media like the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, uh, national public radio. Um, uh, there are uh, a variety of outlets that are very rigorous in terms of uh, what they report. Uh, but we also have less sophisticated media, media that sees an opportunity to get a, an additional viewership, uh, an additional circulation uh, by promoting things that factually they know are incorrect, but because there is a large fraction of the population, or at least a large fraction of the audience that they want to appeal to, who do have those beliefs, that they 
uh, promote stories on that sort of thing. Um, oh, for example, uh, at, at Loch Ness, I'm sure the local visitors bureau uh, likes to promote the fact that the Loch Ness monster is, is real and the stories about the Loch Ness monster, even though the scientific community, I think, is fairly well established uh, that we don't have any prehistoric uh, sea serpents uh, going around in, in, in the Loch Ness. Uh, you know that that's that's one example, but there are many many others, and and there are charlatans, uh, individuals who who claim uh, a special understanding of nature, of of God, of of uh, what have you, uh, that they they may be true believers themselves, or they may just be con artists, uh, but. I think the only way to address uh, those kind of influences is, is again through education. And it's, it's a problem in that uh, education is not instantaneous. We can't set up an educational system and the next day everybody is going to be uh, well-educated. It's something that unfortunately uh, takes a while, takes uh, in many cases, generations. And uh, the only way it's ever going to be accomplished is if we start doing what's needed in order to provide those educational opportunities uh, for people uh, starting now. And uh, hopefully within the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years, we'll have uh, a population both, both a national population and a global population uh, that will be infor more informed and more educated and more able to distinguish between uh, what is, is fact-based and what is uh, a con, what, what, what is uh, something that uh, uh, is appealing to our emotions and our ignorance uh, rather than to our logic and understanding. And you may find it amusing uh, that you know uh, in, in in India here all the all this fake information they make use of NASA's authority. You know they say um, you know NASA has uh, said this, NASA has said that. One example is uh, is about uh, the sound from sun. So I mean you know we we know that you know um, so so all these density fluctuations you know on sun's uh, corona. I think they they are just. They are just translated into sound, like 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 ECG, uh, nothing more than that. And you hear it. I mean, it's it's not anything. I mean, you just hear it. Maybe maybe your our, our ears are good at you know finding density fluctuations better than our eyes. You know, when we look at graphs, that may be the only right. purpose. But it's it became a, a sort of thing of its own. And you know, we I mean, I see a message in my WhatsApp every five days saying that you know NASA has confirmed that the son of sound is Om. This Om is a holy <laughs> sound, you know, in, 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 in the Hindu religion or Sanatana Dharma as they are calling it these days. So is really, does really sun, does sun really release these, uh, you know, these, uh, these Vedic chants or, you know, uh, of, of the subcontinent at 23 and of degree la latitude? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, 
And yeah, NASA did NASA give a sign of approval on this, really. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the, there have been some recent stories which have attempted to say that black holes have sounds associated with them. And again, it's just a translation of, you know, measurements of the intensity of, of certain wavelengths of radiation from from uh, the, the the dust and gas spiraling into a black hole, um, I, and and you know tr trying to associate uh, sounds with the intensity of of uh, that radiation, and uh, it has no relationship to an actual sound <laughs> that's being emitted by the sun or a black hole. Um, uh, you know, sound doesn't propagate in space. There may be seismic waves, uh, you know, seismic disturbances that propagate in the sun uh, that tell us something about uh, what's going on in the interior of the sun. Uh, there may be, uh, you know, certain frequencies that are emitted uh, by the gases uh, uh, and, and dust that's being accreted by a, a black hole. Um, but those are far different things than uh, uh, anything that has any spiritual or astrological significance. Uh, I think uh, uh, it's getting very late for you. Uh, so definitely uh, the conversation is really going very interesting and we will catch you up with some other time because it, it you know it's i think probably midnight for you and set it as well um so i'm from sydney uh it is okay for me and teza is uh, okay for teza too but yeah you, you know it, it's probably very late for you too um so uh, i'll have i'll ask one last factual question before closing um that is uh, um with the kind of uh, uh a limited budgets uh, that scientific missions uh, get each year. Um, uh, what is your opinion the next logical step needs to be? Uh, should we uh, focus on sending people to Mars or just uh, try to send some rovers to Mars to learn more things than uh, you know, uh, going back to the moon, like spending tens of billions of dollars uh, to do what we have already done 50, 60 years back. Uh, uh, because, uh, I mean, we have had enough missions to know enough of moon. Uh, so that's one last question, sir. Yeah, that, that, that's a question that uh, has been intensely debated in the United States over the past 20 or 30 years. Uh, whether we should return to the moon or skip the moon because we've been there, done that, and go on to Mars. And I think that there are some very uh, pragmatic uh, uh, aspects to that decision uh, in terms of using the moon as a way of um, proofing our ability to land and explore on a planetary surface to set up a human settlement uh, when the distance involved is such that uh, it, the possibility of rescuing, if something goes wrong, 
uh, is, is much more realistic when you've got a travel time of three or four days from the Earth uh, to the moon uh, than to skip the moon and undertake voyages of six to eight months to go to Mars, uh, where the opportunity to rescue, uh, to respond to an emergency that happens in flight or happens when the astronauts reach the surface uh, is, is, you know, much, much longer. And, and uh, uh, I, I think it's good to uh, test our ability uh, to explore a planetary surface, uh, to set up uh, uh, a habitat that can support astronauts uh, for a considerable length of time, for, for months to years, and, and to test that hardware uh, in the near Earth environment, in, in, in the, the, the lunar environment. But I also think that there are some science questions that uh, we still need to address. Uh, you know, look at uh, the amount of water that is trapped in the lunar poles. Uh, to understand more about the internal structure of the moon, uh, which may have relevance in terms of uh, the evolution of the moon and also the evolution of the earth. There's, there's a lot in terms of understanding uh, how the moon formed, the similarities between the composition of the moon and the earth's mantle, um, uh, the way in which the, the, the moon was born, uh, the possibility and, and, and very much the likelihood uh, that the moon formed out of the debris from a, a collision between uh, another protoplanet and, and the Earth, uh, you know, 4.6 billion years ago. Um, so I, I, I think there are still scientific questions, and I think there are practical aspects in terms of uh, uh, providing the, the assurance that we have the technology and the knowledge uh, to go on to Mars uh, with, with space vehicles, uh, with, with habitation modules, uh, with exploration, uh, human manned, uh, I shouldn't say manned, <laughs> but, but, but crude um, uh, mobility, uh, uh, crude rovers uh, that uh, we develop on the moon and, and then bring to Mars uh, to ex explore the regions around any human settlement. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think the logical progression is to go from the moon to Mars. Going to the moon is going to cost us tens of billions of, of, of dollars. Uh, going to Mars is going to cost us hundreds of billions of dollars, even if the initial exploration is done uh, through the kind of techniques that Elon Musk has talked about with SpaceX. It's going to be a very, very expensive and very, very risky operation. And I think it's good to test uh, uh, that ability to test the equipment that's going to be needed to make ultimately a Mars mission uh, to, to do so uh, with the Earth's moon. Yeah, um, that's very interesting, uh, Stephen. 
Uh, one last question I have to take because someone left on uh, the audience from the live feed um, is uh, what safety measures for safe eclipse to see, especially because it's not even seen in India. So are there any safety mechanisms that, uh, that uh, needs to be followed to see eclipse? Uh, certainly not with the lunar eclipse. Uh, you know, with the lunar eclipse, you're, you're just looking at, you know, if, if you've looked up at the moon, yeah, uh, you've looked, uh, you know, during normal times when it's uh, full or, or in a partial phase, you're seeing sunlight reflected from the lunar surface. And that's when the moon is the brightest. During an eclipse, when the Earth's shadow, uh, you know, passes over the moon, the intensity of that light decreases. And so, you know, if, if, if you're safe when you're looking at a full moon, you're gonna be safe looking at a, at, a, at a lunar eclipse. The only time safety is really an issue in terms of eclipses is when it's a solar eclipse. And, and then certainly looking at the, the sun requires uh, very special considerations in terms of how you observe uh, a solar eclipse, uh, but absolutely nothing to worry about with the lunar eclipse. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. And uh, uh, thank you for sharing your uh, 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 you know, the, uh, inspiring uh, stories about what motivated you uh, in the first hand and uh, uh, certainly brings back my memories uh, where uh, uh, there used to be a weekly science program called Turning Point uh, in late 80s, early 90s in India, where it was like a half an hour program every week. And there are a couple of other programs in uh, radios, you know, the some science uh, science programs and uh, um, a couple of uh, very uh, uh, easy to understand uh, books uh, uh, for kids, like uh, uh, it's called tel uh, What the Telescope Tells Us, you know, uh, <laughs> where I used to learn uh, a lot about the planets and, uh, and the atmosphere uh, uh, with each of those planets and things like that. So why I'm saying this is, uh, um, uh, as we discussed in India, a lot of people are literate, but not educated, if I can put it in that way. So what yes. we need is education, not you know, increase in literacy, uh, understanding science and scientific method, then trying to, you know, um, uh, get over with equations and you know, doing some math to you know score marks and you know get a good livelihood uh, or a better life outside the country uh, so uh, we continue doing this uh, 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 you know putting efforts and you know collectively doing uh, you know Sarath garu and many other people are behind this effort uh, you know who who are trying to Know, uh, you know educate people and uh, you know uh, bring the rationality into the common minds minds um, uh, people's minds so uh, so it's very very good to have you here uh, i know it's very late for you and thank you again from each one of us uh, for sharing for uh, for spending your valuable time uh, and sharing your experiences and opinions also uh, with our audience uh, if, if there is anything more shared uh, otherwise uh, we can we can um, say a goodbye and good night uh, for Stephen. Um, I would I would just want to say um, I think uh, Steve uh, Dr. Clifford uh, 
and Steve, as you would uh, as you would like to be addressed as um, your passion for Mars, I think it's it's very inspirational, and uh, I think your passion and love for science, uh, planetary science, and I think um, your I think uh, it's it's I think it's highly ins inspiring is what I felt uh, during the course of our discussion, and uh, and it's way past it's past your midnight and uh, and your uh, levels of energy and the spirit, and I think it's it's just showing um, and. Um, I would really, uh, you know, I, I, I thank you. Uh, we thank you, uh, you know, for your time and for your uh, patience and answering all our questions. And, uh, and I hope uh, we would uh, meet later again and then, and then talk at length about many other things, uh, you know, uh, you, would, you would be interested in sharing uh, about science, about you and about how, uh, we can, uh, how we can increase enthusiasm towards science uh as as general and uh, i think i think we, we i think we can we can close with um uh with with, with the star trek um you know popular uh, you know uh, phrase you know live long and prosper thing that applies for yeah. everyone for the humanity and everything yeah <laughs> thank you it's, it's been my pleasure to participate in the the discussion tonight i think you are are, are doing a, a very valuable service uh, in terms of uh, promoting the understanding of science. And I, I think uh, uh, that, that, that is something that is extremely important. And uh, it's important now and, and certainly very important to, to uh, the, the, the students and generations that come. You're just uh, keeping the fire burning. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, thank you very much for joining us again. Um, thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, this episode's uh, 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 Let's Talk Science. Uh, uh, we'll be back with another interesting guest in the next episode. Thank you very much. Great. Good night.